Uh, well, I have three children. The middle one, uh, my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Addie, uh, recently was um, running around and fell down, as children that age are prone to do, and skinned her knee and came running into the house. Mommy, my knee! Deeply desiring that we fix what had happened uh, to her knee. And uh, so we're sensitive parents and came running and scooped her up and ran into the bathroom. And Susie said, go get the supplies. And I got the Band-Aids and the Neosporin. And Susie's ready to wash off the cut. And as soon as Addie realizes what's happening, she says, no, don't put on the Band-Aid. Perhaps you've experienced a similar series of events where um, your children want to be healed and do not want what it takes to be healed. And uh, as often happens, my, um, my children's lives are a metaphor for my own life and uh, perhaps for yours, that we, that we want to be healed, but not really. And uh, so we're going to see this morning that Jesus uh, comes to a man in a pool who needs to be healed and asks him if he wants to be healed. And uh, I think the answer is not really. Um, Because Jesus has a deeper agenda for us than we would have for ourselves. Um, Just to introduce this passage, as Chris mentioned, so the last time I was preaching on John, we took a look at... um, Jesus healing the official son from a distance, the second sign that he did. And uh, he did this immediately after having returned from Jerusalem. So he was at a feast in Jerusalem, and then he um, had to pass through Samaria on the way back north, met the woman at the well, spent a couple days evangelizing and converting the entire town of Sychar, arrives up in Galilee, kind of his home base, uh, heals the official son. And then the next thing we hear is, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So after this, that little phrase in the Gospel of John is um, code for maybe a little time, maybe a long time. It doesn't really matter. There's a big chunk of, there's a chunk of time in here, and we're going to fast forward. Um, so Jesus just got back to Galilee, and now he's going right back to Jerusalem uh, for one of the other feasts. Uh, John, uncharacteristically, doesn't tell us which feast it is. Um, usually he says he's going down for tabernacles, he's going down for Passover, because there's something about the feast that relates to what Jesus is doing there. In this case, he doesn't tell us, so there's probably no connection between the actual feast that Jesus is attending and the event, other than the fact that this is a feast. It's a feast. It's a big party. It's like Thanksgiving or Christmas. Um, Three times a year, the Jews were commanded to all gather together from wherever they were, to come to Jerusalem and have usually a week-long, massive party. This is a time of celebration and feasting, of remembering God's great acts in the past. Passover uh, remembers the great redemptive uh, event of the Old Testament wherein God brought his people out of slavery. Weeks, the Feast of Weeks celebrates the first fruits uh, and the giving of the law and the entering end of the land. The Feast of Tabernacles, the most joyous of them all, um, celebrates the end of the harvest and the end of all things where God has done everything well and made all things well. And so these are times where God wanted his people to celebrate, that it's important and healthy for us to celebrate. So Jesus is um, on his way to a celebration. 
and he enters Jerusalem, and he goes to the Pool of Bethesda. Bethesda means house of outpouring or place of outpouring. It's actually plural, outpourings. Uh, and uh, interestingly, there was some discussion about this passage about how um, the Gospel of John isn't really real because there's no such place in Jerusalem. And then uh, about 60, 70 years ago, we found this place. Uh, exactly where John said and exactly how he describes it. It's two pools uh, with a kind of step down between them fed by a spring and another system of pools, and all the way around them is uh, a roofed colonnade, picture like a portico, and then one cutting off the gap between them for a total of five. This is John says, Now there was, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Aramaic a place called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And uh, we know from history that the pool of Bethesda was what the Greeks called an Asclepion, uh, it's a pool of water right next to the temple of Asclepius, who is the Greek god of healing. And so in a first century kind of way, the pool of Bethesda was sort of the designated place for all the homeless people to go. That's kind of our, our modern day translation. Maybe like um, the space uh, across uh, Nimitz Highway from Kaka'ako, where there's, uh, if you've ever driven through there, there's basically a tent city with homeless individuals and families and children, and they live there. And so the pool of Bethesda, the Asclepion, it's a place of healing. And so if you're uh, in hurt or alone or you can't make it to the feast or you don't feel like you belong in the feast, you go to the pool of Bethesda and you go there in hopes of having healing of some kind. There's, um, depending on the translation you have, you may have about a verse and a half inserted in there in between... um, verses 3 and 5, that kind of explains, well, so the Spirit of the Lord used to disturb the waters, and whoever was the first person into the water after that happened was healed. And you'll find that in some translations and not in others. There'll just be a footnote. Here's what's happening. We have a lot of different manuscripts of the New Testament and of John. Some of them are early. Some of them are late. And that verse and a half shows up in all of the late manuscripts and in none of the early manuscripts. And so it's probably not real, uh, which is why it wasn't in our reading, why it may not be in your Bible. It's probably a little note that somebody made along the margins at some point sort of explaining or maybe even in a sense Christianizing this tradition that, that there's the temple of Asclepius and the god of Asclepius, and if you get in the water, he might heal you. And a more Christianized version would be, well, the spirit of the Lord, he was the one really doing that, and he stirred the waters anyway. What that gives us simply is uh, background onto why this man is at the pool. The first thing I want us to see about Jesus' ministry, because we're going to take a look at um, three things from Jesus' ministry, uh, is that he signifies his ministry by coming to bring life. Um, That his bringing of life and healing signifies and typifies what he does. That Jesus is on his way to a celebration, and on his way there, he takes a detour to go to the pool of Bethesda. Um, the pool was by the Sheep Gate, which is on the north side of town, and so it may that would have been the direction that Jesus was coming from. This may actually have been his first stop in town. He enters town, it's time for a festival, and so he goes to the place where the homeless and the lame and the hurting people are, who don't belong or don't feel like they belong. 
John Calvin notes that um, Jesus healed this man, not just at this feast, but every time he goes to Jerusalem for a feast, Jesus heals somebody. And John Calvin comes to the conclusion, this is a statement about what Jesus is here to do, that um, in the midst of our celebration, he pays attention to those who are not in position to celebrate, and he will bring healing to them. Um, that it's important in this context of celebration that he goes to the place of hurting, just like he does every time, and gives us a sign of what he is here to do, that he finds the, the most possible crippled man who's been unable to walk, apparently, for 38 years. And he will heal this man. It um, was, it could have been, should have been, like a, a drumbeat for those in Jerusalem looking for the coming Messiah, getting louder and louder and louder. We come to the feast and we find out, feast after feast, people are being healed. Something is happening. God is at work. Who is this man doing these healings? So we learn about Jesus' power and his ability to help people, but also his intention, his heart, just like he made water into wine at the beginning. He will come to deal with our pain. It's a sign of greater life. Um, Jesus asks him the question in verse 6, do you want to be healed? It's kind of a stupid question, actually. Of course the man wants to be healed. He's been, he's at the pool, trying to get in the water. He's been needing help for 38 years. But it's also, as it turns out, a very good question. That Jesus, um, being Jesus, is so good with questions. He has a way of asking people questions, of making initial statements which draw them out and help Jesus see and really help the person see what needs to be seen. Nicodemus says, we know. Jesus says, you don't know unless you've been born again. He says to the woman at the well, go get your husband. And the woman says, I have no husband. Jesus says, you have answered rightly. So he says to this man, do you want to be healed? And uh, his answer is indeed revealing. If you take a look at verse 7, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going in, another steps down before me. Uh, the, man, the man knows what is going to make him well. He's been at the pool a long time. This man has lived a while. He knows what works and what doesn't. He needs to get in the water. Other people get in there before him. He can't do it, and so that's what's necessary. It's never happened before, and it's probably not going to happen now unless you, sir, want to sit with me until I can get in the water, but I know that you don't, but there you go. Ask a stupid question, get a stupid answer. The man knows what will make him well. And is usually the case for us, when we know what will make us well, what usually follows is cynicism and bitterness. Because you just know that what I really need is a little bit bigger paycheck. And I don't ever get that, do I? Or some rest, or another holiday, or that promotion at work, or my boss, to just go away. That we know what will make us better. And yet those are the things that tend not to work. Um, 
One commentator calls this the man's pool theology. He's got a whole theology. He'll, here's how the world works. It's the pool. You get in the pool. You get healed. I am not the kind of person who is able to get in the pool. Therefore, my reality is rotten. And what, sir, are you going to do about it? And Jesus rejects his pool theology. Jesus does not um, enter into a discussion or have a debate or fill him in on the, the finer points of philosophy. What Jesus does is say, get up. He said, get up with the same power and authority that he will say it on the last day. When everyone will rise from the dead. In fact, in the same chapter, in verses 25 and 26, we hear Jesus saying this. Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. That's Jesus. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted to the Son to have life in himself. Jesus rejects the man's answers for his own problem, and he offers his own theology, which is basically, I am. I am. I am the one. And I am telling you that you are healed. Go ahead and get up. And at once, the man was healed, and he took up his bed. And walked. Jesus delays his feast to meet with the pain, and he brings life where it had atrophied. So the first question is, has, has Jesus, or maybe more appropriately, when did Jesus do this in your life? That um, knowing Jesus and the way he works, I think the likelihood is very high that at some point, or perhaps many points in your life, Jesus worked to bring life in the midst of uh, your distress or lostness or emptiness or pain, that he met you in that place and brought life. Because this is what he does. And um, it will do us well to remember and to meditate on those things. In the Bible, it talks about the stone of Ebenezer, an Ebenezer stone. Um, there's a hymn that makes reference to it. An Ebenezer stone is a remembrance stone. It's a, I'm setting up this stone in Old Testament terms so that I won't forget what the Lord God of heaven and earth did for me in this place. May I always remember and live in accordance with what he did for me. Some of you may still remember that we once had a family here named the English family. And the tragic news is that um, shortly after they moved to Hawaii, their almost five-year-old son fell from a second-story window and passed away. And I don't know that I will ever finish processing that, but I know that I'm a better person for having known them and the way that they've walked through this. But the less-known story is about a year after that, their, um, one of their surviving children, their older son, Jason Jr., his vision got worse and worse and worse. And uh, his prescription, his glasses were getting thicker and thicker and thicker. And so they went and visited a doctor on the island, and he said, your son has a degenerative disease in his eyes, and he has between 3 to 12 months left to see, so he should start learning Braille right now. And we were all heartbroken that this family, having gone through the disaster they did before, would um, 
face this catastrophe as well. So they went and they met with a second doctor who said the same thing. So they met with a third doctor who said the same thing. And we were moved and profoundly discouraged and asked them if we could pray for them. And so our elders fasted for 24 hours and we met with them in this room and laid on hands, as it says to do in the scriptures, and anointed with oil and prayed. And the next day, Father Jason, son Jason Jr., got on Hawaiian Airlines Flight 12 from Honolulu to San Francisco to meet with an eye specialist there who met with her son. And after a few minutes said, I do not know what you are talking about. There is no problem here. And there is no problem. Even for Presbyterians, healing can still happen. Because this is what Jesus does. He's done it in the scriptures. He's done it in our life. And we, we, are, the, we are the Jesus community. So there's two aspects of this. The first one is, here's just a statement of fact. You are the Jesus Christ community. You are the ones who have received his life-giving influence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we are gathered together, there's a kind of life-giving influence that may even be hard for you to see because you're part of it, but it's, it, that's, it's just a fact. That's what the scriptures say. For those of us who are believers, this life-giving influence that Jesus had in him and brought to Jerusalem is now part of you, and we as a community effervesce that to those around us. The flip side of that is that we ought to live out that reality in a way congruent with what is true about us. In other words, we are the life-giving community of Christ, and so we should live that way. We should live in such a way that we are a blessing to the community around us in practical ways. America needs, wants, and celebrates freedom. Excellent. We're going to help. We're going to help establish that freedom through our lives, through our voting, through our military service. We are here to be a blessing to our country. There's a rediscovery of um, Hawaiian culture within the Hawaiian Islands the past 20, 30 years. Yes, excellent. We're going to help out with that. How can we volunteer with the hurting, with the homeless, maybe even just with your neighbors? Does your neighbor need to move? Why not help them? Because Jesus helped us, that we ought to live in such a way where those around us say, you know, those Christians, they believe crazy things, but here, you know what? I hope that Trinity never goes away because that's one of the best things that's ever happened to Kailua. That is what would be in congruence with what is true, what Jesus has made true about us. The, um, the elders are even now looking for opportunities for us to be involved and serve in our community. Um, but while we do that, I just encourage you to do that. Uh, on a personal level in your life, how can you live not to empty yourself, but to be a blessing to those that you come into contact with every day? Uh, the first known reference to Christianity outside of Christian texts in um, texts from out in the world is a letter from a governor named Pliny the Younger to Emperor Trajan. And uh, he writes a letter to the emperor because he is not, he cannot figure out what to do with the Christians. Because to be a Roman citizen, you need to bow down before the statue 
of Caesar, who is God and Lord. And the Christians don't do that. What an irritating, obstinate, disobedient people. But Pliny looks into their lives, and he finds that not only are they working evil and doing destruction, they actually take vows to not work evil and not work destruction. He actually says they are one of the most life-giving influences in our community, and I do not know what to do with them, that they won't bow to Caesar, but yet they're the best people that we have. It is the first testimony of Christianity in pagan texts, and we ought to continue to live that out today. Jesus came to the world to give life. We should also see that... um, Jesus pushes on to deal with the real problem. And the real problem is sin. That Jesus heals the man and he slips away for a while. And uh, then there's this controversy about carrying mats uh, on the Sabbath. And uh, we'll talk about that on another day. Just hold on to that thought. Uh, And then Jesus comes back and he finds the man. Jesus heals him, disappears, sends him off for a while. Jesus seeks him out in the temple because now the man is free to leave the pool and enter the temple because he's been made clean. Verse 14, Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, if that statement doesn't make you at least a little uncomfortable, you're not paying attention. Uh, In part because... uh, what is worse than 38 years of paralysis? Seriously. But secondly, sin no more. Anyone who has any amount of self-awareness knows that that is uh, incredibly difficult. In fact, if you're familiar with the teachings of Christianity, you know that Jesus himself taught that that's not possible. So why on earth is Jesus tormenting this poor man that he just healed, commanding him to sin no more? First of all, um, Jesus has already shown his power and his goodwill, right? And so if he challenges the man to sin no more, and the man feels himself on any level unable to meet that charge and on any level concerned about what could possibly be worse than 38 years of paralysis, he has a good reason that he can ask this man who just healed him from 38 years of paralysis. That Jesus has showed himself um, powerful and trustworthy. I think in a sense Jesus is repeating his question, do you want, do you want to be made well? See, you are physically well. Are you interested in being made well from your real problem? Sin no more that Nothing worse may happen to you. It's, it's almost a question. It's, it's, he's inviting space for the man to cry out for help again. And, um, sorry, these came out double-sided, so I'm having trouble with my pages up here. Okay, that page we did already. That one over here. Jesus has made clear what he meant by his question, do you want to get well? His aim the entire time is to um, demonstrate his life-giving blessing and yet deal with the man's problem of sin. 
Paul clarifies this in Romans 2. It says this, that he, that's God, will render to each one according to his works. To those who by penitence and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. But the thing worse than 38 years of paralysis that Jesus is speaking of is um, what we usually call hell. And I'm not super comfortable with this, but just for the record, Jesus spoke about it more than anyone else because he probably knows more about it than anyone else and wanted us to be warned the danger of continuing in sin. And it says here, if you continue in righteousness, you will be saved. And if you continue in sin, you won't be. Except just before that in Romans 5, he speaks of um, those who are hard and impenitent in heart. And he makes clear that uh, that wrath is only for those who are hard and impenitent in heart. This is what I meant when earlier when I was talking in the confession. What Jesus is looking for is people who want to be made well. All it takes is, sir, help my unbelief. Sir, help me with my sin. And Jesus says, friend, your sins are forgiven. It's a Jesus quote. But for those who are not interested in having their sins healed, uh, there is judgment. A side note, by the way, on sin and sickness. Um, there was a, a thought in the first century, which is sometimes shared today, that... Um, Sickness is usually a result of sin, and so if you sin, you became sick, or if you got sick, you got to figure out what sin you committed, or the reverse of that, if you prayed to get better, but you didn't get better, maybe it's your own fault because you didn't really pray well enough. So people asked Jesus about this, by the way. They came to him, and they said, hey, there was this tower, and uh, it fell on a bunch of people, and they died, so what was the sin that they committed that made the tower fall on them? And Jesus says this, Those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Jesus' answer is this. No. No. They are not worse sinners, and usually sickness is not related to specific sins. But there is a general sense in which all sickness is the result of all sin and in a general way should remind us that we are all broken people in need of humbling and God's help. And by the way, no, those people weren't sinners, but unless all of you repent, something worse may happen to you. It's really the same message. So we should know that Jesus will come and he will bring life and he will heal us, but you should expect that his ultimate ministry to you will be with your own heart and with your own darkness and your own sin. And you should trust in him because of what he has done in your life, but you should not be surprised when he comes to challenge you and ask you if you really want to be made well. You can think of um, the pattern of the Christian life we're given in the Psalms. What's kind of the pattern of the Psalms over and over and over again? Lord God, I give you thanks because of what you've done in the past. But right now, it's real bad. And we really need your help. So please come help us. We're in a desperate state. But when I remember what you did in the past, 
I'm calm. Therefore, my heart trusts in you, Lord. That's kind of my summary of like half of the Psalms. Remembrance, crying out for help in the midst of um, challenges and God working in your heart and life and remembering again and being comforted by God's character and what he does. Jesus' ultimate ministry to us will be about our sin, and that also needs to be the ultimate ministry that we have to our community. That when we go out and serve and volunteer and bless your neighbors and get to know them, you are demonstrating to them the life-giving, affirming, blessing nature of Christianity. You are signifying. Remember, the sign points the way, but it's not the thing itself. You are signifying the types of things that happen in ministry with Jesus. You are winning a hearing for the gospel, but at the end of the day, your task is to build enough of a trust relationship with that person that you can communicate to them their real need. Freedom from our own darkness. You know, as one person said, we have met the problem, it's us. And the answer that's to be found in Jesus. Will Metzger, a Christian author, um, said this, much of witnessing is bringing people to understand and feel the extent of their helplessness and corruption. So we communicate and live out blessing and yet invite people to realize their own need. America, you want to celebrate freedom? Yes! We're here to do it. We'll help protect your freedom. We'll fight for it. But America, freedom's not the greatest thing that you need. It's not the greatest thing that you need. And we are um, and ought to serve to revitalize the, the cultural presence in these islands from its Hawaiian heritage that, look, if Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth, all the cultures were his idea, and they all ought to be preserved and learned from. There's glory and dignity in every one. And so you want to revive Hawaiian culture? Yes, that is a great thing, and we're going to help you with it. But also, it's not the greatest need of these islands. And what would it look like to have a Hawaiian cultural manifestation of the gospel of forgiveness of sins? Jesus um, heals this man and brings him life, but he's driving towards his real need in sin. Finally, I want you to see that Jesus' help was often rejected. Jesus says to him in verse 14, Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. I don't know that the man was really testifying to Jesus' glory. I don't know that the man was really trying to get Jesus persecuted, although that's what happened. I just think he didn't care. Or at the very least, just he just couldn't go there. That Jesus came to him and asked him, Do you want to be made well? And if you pay attention in the text, the man actually never says yes. And I think ultimately his answer is uh, no. Thank you, but, but no. He wasn't really willing to go there. And uh, like my daughter with her knee, wanted to be made well, but did not want what that really means and what would really be for her benefit and glory.
Uh, there's a side warning here, by the way, that pain, like 38 years of paralysis pain, sometimes works to soften the heart and create openness for the gospel. And sometimes it just hardens the heart. Um, don't pray for persecution, by the way, seriously. The only people who pray for persecution are white people who live in the West. <laughs> that um, it does have a positive effect, but sometimes it will just crush you. Um, but Jesus will bring you if he thinks he's helpful. Jesus' help was often rejected. This man wasn't really interested in, and we should expect that there may be some among us who also are not really interested. I've been in ministry long enough now to experience the pain of seeing people look you in the eye and know what is being offered and turn around and walk away. And we should pray against that happening and not be shocked when it does happen. But it does happen. And finally, we should expect, as we engage in ministry in the community, serving, healing, feeding, homeless, helping our neighbors, that um, sometimes we will be received and embraced and amazing life-giving relationships which will change the course of your life and the flavor of this congregation will result and sometimes people will just be irritated and you will get hurt. But if we are the Christ community here to live Christ, to live what, what we have experienced with him, what we get from other people is not the point. As I said before, our calling, in a sense, is just to be honest. And Jesus will take care of the rest. But he understands, he knows the shame and the disappointment of being rejected. How do you think it felt to heal this man and have the man just turn around and walk away? point, as it was for Jesus, is to give honor to his Father in heaven. Um, when I was in college, uh, I was, had just gone through a revival, I was getting excited about Christianity, just getting up early every morning, reading my Bible, and um, I had to take a foreign language in college, and this, by the way, is one of the reasons why it took me six years to graduate, is I'd taken German in high school, and that was fine, but I discovered in the course catalog that you could take Hebrew! at the University of Washington. And so I threw away my German and started over and took a Hebrew class, Biblical Hebrew, at the University of Washington. There were a couple Christian students in there and a couple ancient Near Eastern students and um, some Jewish folks and people from all kinds. And for a year, we walked through the ins and outs of Hebrew. And uh, I didn't really get it down, but it sure helped me when I got to seminary. Anyway, so we formed a study group. Uh, there were some, some Christians and some ancient Near Eastern students and um, one of the girls in our study group named Sarah was uh, from a Jewish background, and so she was studying Hebrew just to sort of get in touch with her roots. And uh, so in a big group of us, we spent a lot of time together in class, after class. Hebrew is a very difficult language, learning about this and that and getting to know one another. And she had grown up speaking modern Hebrew in her household, and so she could really help us with the vocabulary, and um, we kind of notes for each other. Anyway, we are having the study session one day, and all of a sudden she says, you guys are Christians. What do you believe about X and Y? And I can't even remember what she said. I just remember that we just kind of explained it, and she cried. 
She said, I've known you guys for months. I thought you were such wonderful people. You're some of my best friends. But you really, you think that this text is authoritative. That's the kind of thing that terrorists think. And she cried. And walked out. And it was hard. And I don't know where she is today, but I hope that there was a moment there of, of softening. I don't know, but I still think about it from time to time. But that uh, sometimes is how Jesus' ministry goes. It's how our ministry will go. And in the end, we have to trust him with what he will do with those kind of relationships because he is faithful and, uh, and he will do it. His ministry is to bring life. Let's pray.